Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, we're fortunate to have Landon Glenn. Landon is the CEO and co-founder of Asa Financial. Um, As you'll learn here in a second, they are not from Charlotte. They're based out of Utah, but it's a fintech company that is working to bridge the gap between fintechs and banking um, to solve some of the technical and compliance level issues that exist with fintechs seamlessly integrating within the banking um, system. And as you'll hear, the the core platforms that sit behind the banking system. So as a result, the success of ASA over the course of the next couple of years could indirectly greatly influence Charlotte because Charlotte is so tied to the fintech community. So I met, met Landon at an event here in Charlotte, the RevTech Labs event in November, um, spoke to him a little while, and as you'll learn quickly, he's a very dynamic person. Um, he connects really well. He tells a story, and you can understand it. So really powerful interview today, talking with Landon about what they're doing, how they're doing it, why they're doing it, connect a little bit on, on what's going on in Utah, um, some of Landon's background as to what got him here, how he met his founder or his co-founder. But overall, just a, a really solid podcast today um, with, I think, a, a very unique and dynamic leader of, of, of his company. So I certainly hope that you'll enjoy listening to another edition of the Charlotte Angel Connection. Landon, welcome to the show, man. Excited to have you on. Yeah, glad to be here. Thank you. So as, I was, as we were talking a few minutes ago, you're not from around here. Um, so you're, you're not actually here now. So most folks in the audience probably don't know who Landon Glenn is. Um, so give us your 60 ish second commercial on Landon. Yeah, I'm from Yakima, Washington, born and raised. And then I'm located in Utah now, met my wife who's from Santa Barbara. We've got four kids and, uh, living life here in Utah, looking at the beautiful snow outside right now. And, Uh, fintech founder, uh, always been in finance, graduated in finance, emphasis in real estate, um, got into fintech before it was fintech and uh, did some cool stuff there and then had a fintech that did financial education software uh, prior or after that. And then, of course, what we'll be talking a little more about today is ASA, our, our current business. Yeah. So um, we met at um, the RevTech Labs um uh, event back in November and it was just great to sit down. I think we actually, um, kind of sort of had dinner together, if you will. Um, and started to learn a little bit of the story around Asa. Um, you've got a co-founder co-founder stories are always great stories to hear. Right. So how did you and your co-founder meet? Yeah. And what an awesome event, you know, that was a lot of fun in Charlotte and it was my first time out there. So I was really impressed with the city, with the event and with the, the network there. It was, it was amazing. And, um, Ryan Ruff is the co-founder, uh, to help build and create the idea of Asa. And he's also in FinTech and I worked for his father while I was in college and we got to know each other and became friends. And at the time I was doing a kind of a sales job working part-time. There were about 10 or 15, um, salespeople 
and I was outselling all of them by myself. <laughs> and so I got in pretty close with his father and we later ended up partnering on some stuff. And uh, Ryan and I developed a strong relationship. He's, he's an awesome guy. He actually went through Queen City FinTech and uh, took his uh, budgeting app there that he had developed in collaboration with Duke University and Dr. Dan Ariely. And um, he had some issues with going to market in FinTech that were really keeping him from executing on his vision of what he wanted and why he went into the banking sector. And, you know, we both sat down and realized there's so many awesome apps out there and most people don't have them. Most people can't get them. It's not available through your bank. And if you want cool apps, you got to cheat on your bank. You can't get them from your bank. And so we sat around and brainstormed, how can we fix this problem? And, and is it even possible? And uh, it was a two and a half year process, but uh, we've built something that we believe is really special. So talk about that for a second, right? So two and a half years, so um, the banking relationship is broken, right? So uh, with apps and consumers, right? Is that essentially the thesis that you're going off of? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, banks cannot provide direct access to their data at scale to fintechs. You know, if you want, if a fintech wants to get in with a bank, it takes years. It costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. The compliance is a big issue. And so there's all this regulatory risk in doing it. So yeah, it's, I wouldn't say, I mean, it technically works. It's just, it's just not scalable. Yeah. So um, you'd work for kind of financial education platform before, right? Uh, that's mm-hmm. what Bonsai was. Um, that's right. And then Ryan had had his own spin pal app that he um, had launched and had run and whatnot. Uh, how did you, how did you find out why it was broken and then ultimately how to create the, the solution to, if we can say it, unbreak um, the relationship with the banks, right? In other words, um, was, how did the thesis and development work with ASA come about? Yeah, and you know, with my experience with uh, Bonsai for about five years, I was one of the uh, guys that came in to disrupt and shake things up. Um, you know, the business wasn't growing uh, very much when I came in and we helped scale it from, I don't know if it was like 50, 60, 70 customers. And we got it up to almost a thousand pretty quickly. And, um, you know, one best of show at Finnovate in 2018 uh, made some big changes. And I was really the major driver for that disruption and change within the company to make things, um, to get it on a different path. And so we, uh, it's an amazing company there. My brother's still there and the other co-founders are there and they're, they're doing awesome. They're killing it. And, uh, I was going to probably, I don't know if it was a dozen or, or eight or 10, 12 banking and credit union conferences per year on technology and disruption and marketing. And so for year after year after year, I was hearing about the problems in the industry. And they were, at first they were kind of scared. They're like, oh, the fintechs are coming. <laughs> are we, we, and then eventually it kind of shifted and they were like, we need to partner with fintechs. And we looked at it and we're like, nobody has built an easy way to partner with fintechs. A lot of our bank and credit union customers are asking if we can integrate with their core. Because our, our children's software that was in the schools, we got it in about 50% of high schools in America, won a ton of awards, awesome program. It's kind of choose your own adventure. If you think of Oregon Trail, but for finance and completely free, any teacher can sign up and start using it right now today, no cost. And then we would have banks and credit unions sponsor their local schools. And that's how we monetized it. So in the game, you know, your car would break down and you'd have three or four options. And depending on the choice, it would take you down a different path. 
And so when we went to adult education, they asked us if we could build real data into it to make the coaching classes and the, the, the calculators and everything more seamless. And it just wasn't feasibly possible to integrate one-to-one with every one of our partners. It just financially didn't make sense. And so we realized, okay, well, we don't have access to bank data. We, we can never get it. And we're never going to get it in partnership with the bank. And so I just thought it was a foregone conclusion that it wasn't going to happen. And then in 2019, we were invited to Citibank's Open Innovation Challenge. And I got to meet the CEO of the Citibank, Stephen Bird, at the time and get about 90 seconds of one-on-one time with him. <laughs> and we got to ring the opening bell on the New York Stock Exchange. We got to you know, go do a private presentation at PricewaterhouseCooper. We got to deal with the NBA Players Association out of it. It was amazing. But of the seven fintechs that went to that event, uh, none of us got to deal with Citibank. And we were all struggling. Like the, the whole purpose of the event was to empower the individual to take control of their finances and pay off their debt. And everyone had cool stuff to do that. And none of it could go to market. None of us. You know, another one of them was a former um, QC fintech. I think Coins and uh, HoneyFi were both there. And, uh, you know, we were there with Bonsai. There were some awesome companies there. And nobody was able to get the partnerships with the banks to go at scale. And that's when I realized the only way we're going to truly empower the individual to take control of their finances if we come up with a better way. And so when I had my exit from Bonsai and Ryan found out I was available, he came to me immediately the very day and said, we need to talk. I've got an issue that we've been going through with fintechs and here's the issue. And here's what, here, I don't know how to solve it, but let's figure it out. And so you, you knew it right away, right? There. Cause I mean, you are, you, you'd seen the same problem he'd seen. So it's not like, oh, he yeah. had to, it's not like he had to sell you on it. He, he probably spoke two sentences and you snapped your fingers and said, yeah, let's do this. Yeah. On the first call I said, yes, yes, yes. I'm in, let's do it. So, um, so have, so it's a problem, right? You know, there's a problem. Um, how do you start to identify the solution? Well, everyone's trying to solve that problem and, uh, all the banks, all the cores, everyone's trying to do it. It's, when you say core for the audience, what do you mean? Yeah. Yeah. For those who don't know, um, the bank is really just the uh, front end of everything and they have a back end core system. And the core system is the ledger for the bank. They're typically the technology provider in many cases. So all of the stuff you're using, the bank um, products and services is typically through a core service provider. So the biggest ones are FIS and Fiserv. They're over 80 billion market cap each. And Jack Henry is the third biggest. Um, our CTO actually was the um, guy who built Jack Henry's payment platform and he's done some other major stuff. So and we have another person from the Jack Henry uh, team on our, on our team as well. So we have some deep connections there. And then of course, there's about 50 core processors in total around the country. Um, and what they do is they, uh, they power the banks. So um, back to the solution, how are you developing the solution, right? Um, how are you figuring out how to integrate with it? Yeah, you know, everybody's trying different stuff. Over in Europe, you have open banking, and that's what they think is the future of banking, where you force the banks to have an open API so that the customer, the whole premise is that the customer should own their data and do whatever they want with it. And so they force the banks to open an API, and then the fintechs, the customer can let any fintech they want in there. And then those fintechs use that data to try and steal uh, opportunities away from the bank or replace the bank 
become a, a neo bank. And for those that, that don't know, that's a digital bank with a digital charter. And so they try and it's highly competitive when you look at open banking. The incumbent banks don't want it. They're trying to break it or do the bare minimum to allow it to function. And then you've got these other, um, you know, uh, fintech providers that want it um, and they want the open access to the data so they can take money from and make money off of it. And then you've got the, cu the customer and it's all for the customer. But at the end of the day, nobody is supporting the customer in a way to know, hey, here's uh, someone I should share my data with, or if I share it and it turns out they're a bad actor, how do I fix it? You know, how do I control that access? How do I, you know, manage the relationships? You know, who, what do I do with my data? And so there's a lot of risk associated with that. And, um, you know, I listen to FinTech Insider a lot and they talk, um, they're in Europe from FC, uh, sorry, I, 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 I'm not, it's not coming to mind right now, the name of the group, their parent company, but, um, they, uh, they many times say has open banking failed and it's this constant debate and at money 2020 this year uh, we had some people say hey open banking's failing in europe when can you bring your model over there and so to truly innovate um, i mean you have to we put in our time ryan and i have been <laughs> grinding against the mold pushing and just figuring stuff out and understanding the industry and um you know, many times you have to work to help many other people succeed and, and make money for a lot of other people. And, and um, you have to be humble and be willing to do that. And then your time comes when you understand the industry and you come up with uh, a way to make it better. And so it's such a complex industry. Most people don't even know what a core processor is. And so when you're building tech in that sector, it's very, uh, you know, it's very, uh, you know, niche or niche. It's very, there's not a lot of people that are you know, understanding or even able to innovate there because they don't, they don't know the industry. Yeah. So, so open banking in Europe is, um, shall we say a struggle? Um, and y'all's, I mean, as y'all see that and how it, um, has it functions in some capacity, but doesn't function in other capacities the way the all the different players wanted to, right? And governments probably wanted to work better. Banks wanted to work bank better. Fintechs wanted to work better and consumers wanted to work, right? Everybody's displeased, right? Which is, sounds like a government mandate. Um, but um, <laughs> anyways, um, so what's, what's the different solution that y'all bring in the market? Yeah. So, you know, the regulators that are pushing for the consumer to be in control of their data, have kind of leaned on the U.S. market to uh, open up a bit, and so the banks have, you know, tried to open up to Plaid and some of the other more open banking type providers in the U.S. Um, that's typically, you know, that's kind of understood that they are the open banking platform here. And uh, as you know, with Plaid, when you use your fintechs through them, you don't have a relationship with the bank. You don't, um, you know, they're going to advertise on Credit Karma or Mint.com or you know, take your pick, any fintech. They're going to try and sell you competing products and services that aren't from your bank. And I actually signed up for one once to save a little interest. <laughs> I saved a, like half a point or something. I was like, this is amazing. And then I went to pay the bill and it was some weird no-name provider out of some weird place. And they didn't have, it wasn't even set up to be able to automatically draft the way I wanted. And so I had to get it, log in every month to make the payment. And uh, I hated it. <laughs> it was not worth cheating on my bank for that. And, uh, you know, you kind of learn the hard way that way. And so what's best for the customer is if they can have the local relationship with the bank they love, the person they know, 
the representative that they trust and that person they can talk to if they need it. And if they don't need it, they don't have to go, but they've got the ATM network. They've got the access to everything. It's just convenient and easy, but then at the same time, be able to always have the newest and best tech. And so that's what we've built. Um, the, the model, we call it collaborative banking because it's the next phase in open banking where the fintechs and the banks can work together with a common goal. And when one person wins, the other wins, everybody succeeds and grows together. And the beneficiary of the um, whole partnership is the end user. They get the best possible customer experience, total choice, total control over their data, and they can control their destiny. And so we, we've um, ran it by quite a few regulators and they absolutely love what we're doing. And so it's gonna take some work to introduce it to the market because what we're doing has never been done before. It's, um, it's a bit confusing when you explain it to people. Yeah, no, I can see that. So um, it's just a couple or some obvious questions kind of flow from there. We'll dive straight into the one that you just highlighted, right? So you're, um, you're selling something new, different, right? It's a, um, uh, kind of building something, as you just said, that hasn't been built before. Um, and when you're selling that, and it sounds like you're a pretty good salesperson though. Um, but when you sell that, how, um, how do you, how do you create demand for a product that hasn't existed? How are you doing it? Well, it all comes down to solving a problem and being able to solve it the right way. And so there's already demand for our product. Nobody just knows it's there yet because it's brand new. So when we go in to try to introduce this new concept, we found that repetition is key. It typically takes you know, four times hearing the idea before you can wrap your mind around how we are flipping the entire fintech partnership model on its head. And then once you understand that, you say, okay, this is, this is special. We need this. And that's where we get kind of the passionate um, early stakeholders that can help drive this to the market. So a little background, the name Asa is actually after Asa Whitney. And if you're not a historian or history buff, he's the original proponent for the transcontinental railroad. And so he believed that if you could bridge the gap and connect the coast, it would transform America. And he didn't get to see it completed in his lifetime, but boy, was he right. It led to the industrial revolution and one of the greatest increases in quality of life in human history, other than the domestication of the animal. And so what he, his vision um, created opportunity for everyone. Think of all the businesses that started up along that railway and all the, um, you know, people that were able to grow and succeed and opportunity. Um, and that's what we see with Asa. We want, we're building a new set of rails that is going to lead to a financial revolution. We're going to interconnect banking and technology at unlimited scale. And we're going to create opportunity where do you have a cool idea on how you want to manage your money and you want to use it at your bank? Welcome to Asa. Build it, use it and grow. You can do it. There's no limit to what you can do other than your imagination. And that's the infrastructure that we've built. That's awesome. I've listened to a couple of podcasts with you on it. Um, and not all the way through, but I've, I've, and then I've read some stuff on you as well. And I've read the rails comment before. Um, but I never, I never put two and two together. Um, I guess I should listen to all pod, the entire podcast and maybe I put two and two together, but I do skip around sometimes. So that's, <laughs> um, that's awesome. So it's, um, it fits so clean, right? The, the, the language fits around it really well. 
Um, so you started in 2019. Is that right, Landon? That's right. Um, so it's hard with a startup, right? So you there's a gazillion things that you have to do. Um, how are you defining traction right now? Right. What, um, what, what tells you that you're continuing to do the right things, right? Cause I imagine at this stage of the ball game, you're having lots of conversations. It's taken time to convert people. Um, but what are the traction numbers that you look at that let you know that you're doing the right thing, having the right conversations with the right people? Yeah. So we formally announced and launched the product at Finovate fall this year. And that was our first time. And, you know, that was really exciting because we made some connections with some really awesome groups and including one core processor that has about 1100 bank and credit union customers. And we're working to become a preferred partner of theirs where they can help sell our product to all of their customers. And so that is how we scale um, by getting the cores to see that we're not a threat, that we're not competing in any way. In fact, we are building their products and services um, and all of their solutions into all fintech. About 90% of Americans today are already using fintech in one way or another. And that means that those customers are getting drawn away from their institution. Uh, Fintechs are doing more personal loans than all banks in the country combined. Uh, they're disrupting a lot of segments. And so it's a big issue. So we come in and say, hey, let's bring those, those customers home. Um, you know, banks are getting a lot of complaints about their fintechs breaking. <laughs> I'm sure you've seen that. And I had to stop using fintechs. I won't, you know, mint.com was one of them that every time I logged in, it was fix this, fix that, fix this. And I spent more time fixing the dumb thing than using it. And so yeah. all that friction led to me having to stop using it. And so um, that's when, when somebody calls in and says, Hey, my FinTech won't work. Oh, which one? Oh, my Coinbase won't sync up or this won't sync up or, you know, my budgeting app or my debt app or my investment app or whatever, then we can have the banks tell those customers, Hey, we have a solution for that. It's called ASA. You turn that on, it will never break again. And within that FinTech now we'll have an SDK where all the products and services are owned by the bank. So the fintechs, when they partner with us, they're not selling their own regulated services. They're not selling checking accounts, credit cards, and loans. Um, with that comes a huge amount of regulatory burden. It's almost a deal breaker. It'll, it'll kill many startups because they can't get over that extreme cost up front to, to do that. And so because we eliminate the need for them to do that, they can go to market in days. It removes all barriers to entry. And then when they're selling products, it goes through our API directly to the bank. And so the bank is quoting the rates, the bank is providing the checking accounts, the bank is providing the, the loans. So the bank really owns the relationship and makes all the money, but they pay the fintechs for the value added. And so when those cores see that we can have an SDK into the fintech where they can use their bill pay and their mobile deposit and their checking or save, whatever they need, it's all, you know, the core is, it's, it's retention for the bank, it's retention for the core. Um, it's a synergistic growth model where now the core can participate in all these things they couldn't before, like e-commerce and verification of identity or using ASA to verify your KYC credential out to buying an airplane ticket. I mean, there's so many use cases um, to verify your identity out there. We can talk more about that later, but um, the core is how we scale. And so the cores are very hard to get into. So as they open up and let us in and even say, hey, we want to partner. We want to help sell this to our customers. Um, you know, one core partnership is going to make us a, a billion dollar company. And so, so 
yeah. Is it the, so who's your, who's the client then? Is the client, the core, the bank, um, core or bank, um, the FinTech, who, who are you selling to? Who's the, what's the, uh, I just got confused all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. Now you're kind of leading into another reason why it's so hard to explain this because we are solving problems for the core, for the bank, for the FinTech and for the user. And yeah. so there's so many pieces in this that, uh, people get lost and it's hard to explain the value proposition when there's so many different value propositions. So the ultimate customer here is the bank or credit union who is using ASA. And um, they are going to not only be uh, paying for ASA, but they're also making money off of ASA. They're generating new income from fintechs and from other groups. And so um, there's so many moving parts and opportunities here that, um, you know, the, the, primary customer is the is the bank, but we also sign contracts with the fintechs and the cores. And so um, there's a lot that goes into our model. Normally, and to maybe put it into perspective, normally when a fintech wants to work with a bank, they have to go through a due diligence process, a compliance process. They have to get SOC 2 compliant, um, which costs a lot of money and takes a lot of time and resources. They typically have to have a compliance team. Um, they have to have, you know, the bank will work hand in hand and say, okay, you can say this on social. You can't, or you know what? We can't use social media right now because we're worried that you're going to put our charter, our bank charter at risk and get us um, sanctioned. And if you screw up, it falls on us because we're letting you use our charter. You're an extension of the bank. And so the fintech struggle uh, significantly with that. And they pay a lot of money to get integrated and uh, it's not scalable. You can only do that with maybe one or two fintechs. And that's probably why your bank likely doesn't have any fintechs. You know, maybe they have one, maybe they have two, most of them have none. And so the way we describe banking today is it's kind of like Blackberry where you have to own and control um, the apps that come in. It takes time. And the Blackberry phone had very limited functionality and that was the primary, I mean, they had the whole market and they, you, you could do internet, you could do email. <laughs> and for younger people listening, they're like probably confused right now, but it was a cell phone. Um, <laughs> and then Steve Jobs launched the, the Apple device and he decided to launch the app store in 2008. And within 12 months, they had 75,000 apps and millions, billion, a billion downloads. They had 12,000 developers building um, apps for Apple. And that is called leveraging the power of the crowd. You unlock the crowd, you let them all build their own tech, put it on their own phone and use it on their own phone. And it transformed how we interact with our devices today. And today your cell phone can do anything you can dream. Apple became the first trillion dollar company. Um, they're you know, it's transformed how we interact with our phones. And now your phone can do a lot of stuff. And even though we all have the exact same phone, we all use it in a unique custom way. And so I have different apps than you have. My home screen would probably drive you crazy. So it kind of shows that personalization and customization transforming the industry. And so what ASA is doing for banking is what Apple did for cell phones and mobile devices. And we're going to transform the industry in a way where anything is possible. You know, do you, uh, you want to start a business and you need an app to link you up with funding and help reach the underserved communities? We have, we'll have apps for that. We already have one signed. Are you looking for, you know, apps that'll help you uh, with starting a new business? Great. We have stuff like that. Um, and I think new things are going to be built. Like, um, you know, maybe there's an app for farmers that tracks the price of grain in real time and looks at the weather patterns and forecasts the yield. 
and uh, sends all that data back to the bank in real time so that you can do instant approvals, you know, never have to fill out a personal financial statement again, um, allow you to get real time access, you know, kind of like Amazon has really good data on all of their customers that sell on their marketplace. And they have an unfair advantage in lending over the banks because they know how many clicks you're getting. <laughs> they know the conversion rate. They know the refund rate. They're even collecting the payment for you. So there's no risk almost in them investing in the proven products. And we're going to have that same model for banking where um, we're going to know so much about the customer or the business. The apps are going to be tracking their budgets and their expenses and their income. And we can look at a six-month trend and use machine learning to forecast where they'll be and their their rating or their risk rating, pull in their credit and integrate with the loan API uh, so that we can directly process and power anything that you need with your bank in real time. And so that's probably the only way that it's ever going to be possible for banks to do real-time lending like the fintechs are doing and try and keep up. Do you, um, um, do you ever watch the movie Jerry Maguire? Yeah. 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 So um, you remember, um, I think it's at the end of the movie when he goes back and he says whatever, and she's like, you had me a hello, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you, you said um, never have to do a PFS statement again. Um, and I think you had every business owner right there at hello, right? Right there at PFS. <laughs> I think everybody's, oh man, I want that. That's where we had, that's where, okay. That's where the heart shaped emoji came up and we fell in love. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, how do you, so, you know, um, in your world, as there is any world, there's competition, right? So, and you said it earlier, there's different people trying to attack the same problem, uh, from different ways. How do you, how do you view competition? Do you track competition? Um, you know, what's your, what's your viewpoint on competition? Yeah, so it's it's that's also difficult to describe because uh, you know we actually just went through the plug and play fintech batch fourteen out of San Francisco, and that was really cool. And um, you know we've got a ton of really awesome connections from that. It was it was a great experience, and um, they uh, connected us with uh, Prudential, and I believe we met some people from State Farm that we just met with uh, last week, and they're seeing the same value of this uh, access controller framework. Uh, that we're doing for banking in insurance. And so we're talking to those guys and saying, hey, let's let's do the same thing in phase two when we raise our, you know, series B or what, you know, we're doing a small raise right now, but when we raise our next round, let's hit some of these other verticals like insure tech and, and healthcare and, uh, you know, medical information, things like that, uh, education and, and technology. So, and syncing that all up. And so, you know, the difference between ASA and everyone else out there is um, right now there's a big push in investment and about 20% of all investment dollars have gone to fintech this year. It's a 300 plus billion dollar industry and it's growing 25% year over year. It is incredibly big. And these fintechs are all trying to disrupt the incumbent banks and take away pieces of their market share. And so we really are one of the you know, there's others that kind that are trying to do it in smaller ways, but we are the most disruptive, innovative um, VC-backed product that's coming out to try and help the banks and make them more competitive and to build a new model of partnership where instead of like banking as a service or these other products where we're trying to power fintechs to, you know, solve the compliance 
uh, integration time and make it shorter. And I can't even tell you how many people hit me up on LinkedIn saying, hey, we can help with SOC 2. And like, oh my gosh, geez, like you can tell there's a lot of fintech investment because there's like a half a dozen different companies trying to do the same thing, jumping on the same bad wagon to try and save the, solve the same problem with all the fintech investment going on. And so it's nice to be in a position where we're doing something that's never been done, but it's also kind of terrible because it's harder to get uh, investment backing because people don't understand it. It doesn't click easily, quickly. Um, but then when you find that person that believes in you, um, they look at it and say, wow, you're going to change the world with this. This is going to be, you know, just like Uber, you know, 10x the taxi market by making it cheaper, easier, you know, faster, just more effective to get a taxi or get a ride. Um, they look at it and say, Ace is going to 10x the fintech market. We're going to make it cheaper, easier, and safer to use a fintech. I mean, imagine if you could turn a fintech on without ever having to share your username and password to your bank account ever again or your secret phrase. You know, you don't have to share any of your personal data and fix it constantly. And we don't even have to tell the fintechs your name or email address. And that has never been possible. That makes ASA the most private and secure way to partner with FinTech that's ever been invented. So when people say that and say, okay, you're making it cheaper, easier and safer for people to use it and they can get it straight from their bank and partnerships. So a lot of the risk of sharing your data goes away or you know, if you give away your username and password and then that provider gets hacked and all your money disappears, you're in trouble because you broke the terms of the agreement in many cases with the with the bank by giving away your credentials. And so there's a lot of risk with fintech today and people are nervous about it. They feel like it's not safe. They feel like it's not secure. So when we remove that friction and then we also go to the banks and say, hey, how would you like to do one integration that gives you unlimited fintech? You partner with us and we're making it cheaper, easier, faster, more effective, send us any fintech you want and we can turn it on. And so the scalability there is really exciting. And when people see that vision, we have some pretty passionate followers and investors. Um, you know, we, we didn't go through the, the Queen City FinTech or, or RevTech Labs um, program, but we did take on investment from their venture group. And we also took on investment from one of the founders of Ripple, and then one of the guys that invested in a lot of the unicorns here, unicorns here in Utah, um, Peak Capital, they've got about $4 billion in real estate and then a bunch of venture arms and um, really successful um, venture groups, some of the, the best known in the state. And um, they invested. Uh, so we took on a lot of strategic money from strategic partners. And, you know, with this next round, we're seeing interest from a lot of the top largest banks in the world. And, um, you know, there's so there's a lot of excitement about what we're doing. And so it's just, you know, executing and delivering. So really back to your traction question from a couple questions ago, it's signed fintechs and signed contracts and just new customers and usage. And so that's what, that's our major focus. Um, we just rolled out a major update on the product over Thanksgiving and we're beta testing that. And once that's completed, we'll be rolling out live to all of the customers. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so, you know, as you know, we're here in Charlotte, you're in Utah. Um, you've been there for a while now. What's, and, and you came to Charlotte, right? So you're at our conference, you met some folks, you spent the night, um, and, um, and talked around the city for a while. What's it like to be a founder in Utah? 
you know, it's don't talk a, about your ski event tomorrow. Nobody wants to hear about your fantastic <laughs> ski event. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I guess we get treated really well, you know, all joking aside, we've got a ski day tomorrow and then another ski day that's put on by Silicon Valley bank in January. And last night we were at a Santa party, Santa fest for Silicon Valley bank. And there was VCs and founders and all kinds of people there. And, you know, I was talking to another founder CEO who just raised $53 million and talking to another, you know, there's a bunch of them that have raised tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. And so there's a really strong uh, ecosystem here in Utah right now, and it's drawing in a significant amount of investment dollars. Utah's just knocking it out of the park. So it's a, it's an amazing place to be a founder, um, really great environment. And uh, you know, great for my kids. There's a lot of fun stuff to do here. But you don't have the Panthers. Um, yeah, we don't. Yeah, we don't. So we're, that's we're, probably... <laughs> we're, we're five and seven at the time. So maybe that shouldn't be bragging about that. Um, but, how long, but how long have you been in Utah? Uh, since 2005 now. So what's the scene? What's the startup scene? Um, how has it changed and evolved since, from 2005 to 2000 and essentially call it 22? Last 17 yeah, years. you know, it kind of went from nothing to over the moon. It's that's how I would describe it. I mean, right now the growth in Utah, I can't even believe it. Um, I was in Oceanside, California, for uh, Thanksgiving, and we did a little trip to Disneyland and saw my wife's uh, uh, aunt there and had a great time. And um, I talked to a lot of people, and they said, "Oh, we're thinking about moving to Utah." And so a ton of people are relocating from California and other states to Utah. And they were asking about pricing of houses. And I said, well, you know, <laughs> it used to be really good. And now it kind of stinks, you know, <laughs> like, like a good, uh, you know, nice house is going to be pretty expensive. Even a townhome, you're looking $300,000, $400,000 in many cases. And they said, well, that's like the same price as California. And I said, I know, I know, I don't know what's going on there, but it's super annoying. And yeah, house prices have been going through the roof. Uh, if you drive up and down the freeway, it all used to be empty land. And now there is just building after building after building for tremendously large companies. And having some big major exits from the state of Utah, I think, uh, kind of put it on the map and a lot of people gain some attention. So um, I think a lot of businesses are looking to bring uh, people here and, and start start uh, offices here. So strong founder community? Yeah, absolutely. So and uh, a quickly growing investor community, right? The To a certain extent, the founder community came before the investor community did. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, it drew in investment and more investors. And I talked to a lot of funds that are like, yeah, we're now just opening an office in Utah. Yeah, we're starting to focus there. I think a lot of money has been made um, from some of these big exits and companies that have, you know, either gone public or just exploded in growth. And so people, it's, it's gotten a lot of people's attention because it's not that big of a state. I mean, there's only what, maybe a couple million people here. It's, but there's a significant amount of, of growth in business. So... Um, so spin back for a second, um, at, uh, at Bonza, um, right. So you were big on the sales, right? I mean, you helped really roll that out, get the product moving. Um, <laughs> aside from the challenges that exist and, and so I guess what I'm going with is as somebody that's been at a startup before, um, you know, what are some of the things that you walked away from learning, the most that help you today? Um, 
right? So what is what are the failures or the successes that were created at Banzai that you look back and say, hmm, I need to make sure that we're repeating that or we're using those as benchmarks or, um, ooh, we can't do that over there because that really was a, a drastic failure, if you will, or or whatever it was, right? I mean, how, how have you learned and grown from that perspective? Yeah, you know, I think um, with Banzai, I, I had the opportunity to learn and grow a ton because I was going to a lot of events, uh, presented at Finnovate and, and One Best of Show. Uh, you know, the company... Um, and kind of the structure of it, I spent a lot of time trying to drive um, the product and the solution to become what the, the customer wanted and to make it better and more scalable. And so it wasn't just, hey, walking in and like, just make a bunch of sales and here we go. We had to change the pricing. I had to push to change the product and transform everything we were doing and kind of drive the next steps and in the innovation of, you know, okay, what should we be doing next? And um, we had a big competitor that had raised like $250 million. And, uh, you know, we were stealing customers from them left and right. And we were just doing some really cool stuff. And so it kind of gave me the confidence to know that I could do anything and the confidence to know that even if someone raises hundreds of millions of dollars, you can go out and beat them on the marketplace. You can build a better product. You can solve the problem better. You can be more innovative. Uh, you can you know, provide a better solution to users. And at the end of the day, um, you know, do really amazing stuff and make a difference in the lives of the people. So all of the businesses I've been involved in have done things that make people's lives better. And that's one of the, the key requisites that I have for uh, working with a company or even for a company or starting a company is it has to have a really good moral cause that's going to make a difference. And so, um, you know, all full disclosure, I, I don't have to be doing this and I've done really well with investing and I had a really great exit and, you know, things are, you know, really good for my family financially, but this is going to make the world better and it's going to, it's going to help a lot of people. What, so, um, it's such a great point, right? Um, that company raises $250 million to not give them the, the golden ticket, right? There's, there's ways to, there are ways to beat them. And, and it's such a hard thing around Charlotte when you're talking to, to, um, to potential investors or whatever. It's like, well, that startup can't do that because I mean, look, bank of America is down the street and who's going to be bank of America in your view, what's the secret sauce, right? That allows a startup that's just raised two or three or $4 million, whatever the magic number is to go out and beat the socks off of and not to use your sock term from earlier, um, <laughs> but beat the socks off, you know, an established player, right? I mean, what's, what makes startups successful? You know, to me, it, it all comes down to your ability to solve problems and to figure out problems and to see something that no one else can see. And, um, you know, I think uh, just um, from when I was in college, you know, when I was a little kid, I was out selling things door to door and winning awards and one of the top football gold card sellers in the country and got a scholarship. I didn't even know it. And um, I took a test from my brother's company when I was younger, uh, before I had started my career. And um, I scored you know, the highest he had ever seen on just, um, uh, social, um, just the ability to, you know, social adaptive ability to be able to understand and see and solve problems. And so that's been really good for me for, from the sales side, but I can tell you, you just have to be 
paying attention. You have to be looking at the things that other people aren't looking at. And you have to have a completely open mind. You can't have your preconceived notions. You have to be humble enough to know you might suck. <laughs> you might be wrong. You might have the wrong idea here. And so if you're willing to take in everybody's thoughts and you've got a good head on your shoulders and you can solve the problem better than anybody else, then you're going to be able to do things that cannot be done with money alone. And um, you're going to be able to build things and solve problems and people are going to be drawn to you. And there were some key product pieces that um, I was pushing to have implemented and built into Bonsai that we did. And it made us, it, that was the differentiator over uh, the people with a lot of money. And um, we, they didn't have what we had that way. And so, you know, it all comes down to where are your priorities and why are you doing it? Um, are you just doing it because you want a dollar or some money or are you doing it because it's the right thing to do? And if you're willing to do the right thing to do over profits, then you're going to be able to solve problems and customers are going to be loyal and they're going to come to you and be drawn to you. And so I think, um, you know, it's, you got to put your time in, you got to work, you got to learn and you got to be smart and solve problems. It's funny. So, um, I took one of those tests, um, I don't know, four or five, six years ago or something like that landed. Um, and the, um, the lady, good friend of mine that was telling me about who I was and whatnot from the test. Um, she said, you had the most unique ability, um, I've ever seen in being able to read people. Right. So if you're having a conversation with somebody and you think they're a, you know, a super nice person or a complete and total, you know, um, trust your gut because you're, you're going to be more right, um, or right more than anybody I've ever run across. And I've seen thousands of these, of these tests come back. So, um, I guess where I'm going with that is, um, I like you. Um, I think, um, <laughs> I think you're, I think you're doing some really cool things. So I think that ability to connect and that ability to, um, to problem solve and, and listen and take that feedback appropriately is, uh, is going to do really cool things for you with ASA. So, um, thanks for sitting on the podcast with us for the last you know, 40, 45 minutes, sharing the story, talking about what you learned, um, talking about what you're doing and how you're doing it. Greatly appreciate it. And we'll pull hard for you um, uh, from, from here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Yeah. Thanks so much. I can't believe it's been 45 minutes. That was awesome. Yeah, man. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> I really you. enjoyed it. Yeah. So, yeah. um, but, um, don't break anything skiing tomorrow. Remember you got a business to come back and run. I know. I know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Only the kitty hills for me from now. No more backflips <laughs> off the mountain. <laughs> uh, well, thanks again. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Take care. representative of Portis Wealth Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Portis Wealth Advisors. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Portis Wealth Advisors does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. 
Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interest may be offered only to persons who qualify as accredited investors under applicable state and federal regulation or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interest. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in the market conditions and interest rates, and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.